46. We'll be looking at 46 to the end of the chapter. I had this passage in mind when I preached three weeks ago in the morning. And I realized I was just preaching, trying to give up, preach a little bit too much. And so although the sermon stands on its own, I think you'll see some similar themes if you were here three weeks ago in the morning. This is Jesus and his disciples as they are on the way to Jerusalem and they are traveling. And we'll pick up in verse 46. This is God's word. And they came to Jericho. And as he, Jesus, was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is God's word. Well, you tend to act differently when you have nothing to lose. And you got no chips on the table or you got, you're desperate. You act differently. There's plenty of examples in history. I've been listening to uh, some long documentaries on the 80 Years War, which is the Dutch Republic battle with the Spanish forces for independence in the 15 to 1600s. And there was one time, July 2nd, 1600, where the Dutch Republic army attempted to lay siege to the port city of Newport deep in the Spanish held Netherlands. Now, Maurits van Nassau, the, the captain general of the Republican army, he said this is a bad idea. You don't want to try to do a siege deep into enemy territory, have your ships drop you off, and it's just, just not good. But he was overruled, and sure enough, it turned out to be a very bad idea. Archduke Albrecht of the Spanish forces quickly mustered an army faster than anyone thought, and before Maurits knew it, he was cut off. And so by the time he had noticed He had to weigh his options and decided that his best chance was to give battle along the sea. And he positioned his men on the shore where they were trapped between the Spanish army in front and the waters behind. And he even sent away the supply ships. They saw them sailing away to know that they had no escape. It was a desperate plan. The armies were about evenly matched, but they had no retreat and they faced the dreaded Spanish Tertios, which at that time were the crack veteran infantry that were thought to be almost unbeatable in Europe. And so Maritz addresses his troops. He says, you have a choice today, either overthrow the entire Spanish army, drink all the sea or be butchered by the ruthless enemy. My soldiers, we must, ask, must at this time either overcome or die with the swords in our hands. And then he expresses faith in God. And after some positioning, and so the battle starts in the afternoon, the Dutch has some success, but then the Spanish heavier weight of the infantry pushes them back. Both sides are tired, but it looks like the Spanish are going to win and annihilate the Dutch forces. And seeing that his men were about to be completely overwhelmed, he rallies his men and says, fight men, fight or drink the sea. 
and he throws in his last reserves and the cavalry charge breaks the Spanish line and turns what would have been an utter defeat into a sizable victory. Will you act differently when, when you have nothing to lose? You have only one possible choice, and that's your only hope. Well, Mark tells us of a man who has nothing to lose. This man's name is Bartimaeus, and he was blind. Just put yourself in his place. Stop and imagine a day in the life of Bartimaeus. You're, you're sitting along the road with high traffic area, probably because it's the most likely place to beg. It's a good spot. He's got none of the resources that we have today. He was almost certainly not married. He couldn't support a family, so he was excluded from the blessings of the children in the covenant line. Probably lived with family or whoever would take him in. And he would get up in the morning and someone would lead him along the side of the road to where he'd beg. And you sat there the whole day at the mercy of the crowd doing nothing but begging. At the end of the day, you get led back home in the darkness. You would experience your life of scarcity, disability, and shame. Because you were blind. And Bartimaeus is sitting along the roadside when he senses Jesus is coming. Now, I've always wondered when I've read this passage how he knew it was Jesus who was coming. And the scripture doesn't say. It just says that Jesus comes to Jericho. We don't know how long he stays. And then he and his disciples leave the city and they make a lot of noise with the great crowd. How does Bartimaeus know it's Jesus? We, we don't know. My, my guess is that maybe Jesus stayed there a little bit longer for a word to spread that he was coming. And he must have known the news, Bartimaeus. After all, he's hearing all the talk of the passersby. Or it might just be that the crowd is so big and Jesus' reputation precedes him so much that he hears from some of the people right there and then and, and he stops and figures out it's Jesus. Whatever it is, Bartimaeus puts two and two together. He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, um, the crowd, the people in the crowd see Bartimaeus as a nuisance, as an inconvenience. Be quiet. You're messing things up. But it gets only louder, like kind of like a crying baby who knows how to make themselves known. Have you ever ever tried to listen to a sermon when a baby's really crying? Right? You, you, it really carries. And, and, and as a guy who's calling out for alms, he can make his voice carry. And so Jesus hears him and calls him. Notice the action in verse 51. He throws off his cloak. He jumps up and comes to Jesus. And you know the exchange. And Bartimaeus is a man with nothing to lose. And so when he finds out that Jesus is nearby, he does whatever he can to find him. It doesn't matter what other people think. So it doesn't matter if he has to make the most awkward. He'll do whatever he can to talk with Jesus. Matthew shows you Bartimaeus and his faith as an example of a disciple to follow. Uh, sorry, Mark. And, and because the discipleship is the theme of Mark, it's really through its Gospels. And I want us to zoom out for just a little bit and look at the whole Gospel, the structure, to get a bird's eye view and see what Mark is doing here. So if you're taking notes, I'll actually give a few verses that you can write down. Um, Mark is, is, is in very ways a simple gospel. He, he focuses more on actions and not so much the teaching of Jesus. It's, it's full action. No Christmas story starts with a dead run. Right. The, the, it's the, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that's the very beginning. And and so Mark spends a lot of energy on this idea of discipleship. Jesus says, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And so we'll see how the, the structure of Mark actually helps us understand this passage and discipleship. Turn with me to chapter 8. It's two chapters back. Uh, not only is chapter 8 halfway through the book of Mark, there's 16 chapters, but it's also the pivot point up to the entire book. Up to chapter 8, 
Jesus' ministry is in Galilee. We'll call that part one. So one through one, one verse one to chapter eight. But in chapter eight, verse 22, it takes a dramatic change. Jesus heals a blind man. Peter confesses Jesus to be Messiah. Jesus foretells his death. He calls his disciples to follow him in carrying their cross. And then he appears transfigured in his glory in the mountain. This begins part two of the gospel. So part one is is one one through eight, we'll say twenty one, and then from eight twenty two to the end is part two. And you can actually break this though into two parts as well. The first part is on the road to Jerusalem. And that first half of the second part ends with our passage tonight. And and you can see how this works. There's two features of this first part. The first one is geography. It focuses on the journey theme on the road. But the second, you'll notice that it begins and ends with the healing of a blind man. Blind man healed in chapter 8. Blind man healed in chapter 10. And then the second half is Jesus' passion as he reaches Jerusalem. And that would be from chapter 11 to the end. So what we're going to focus is on that first half of part two, chapters eight through ten, the road to Jerusalem. Because Mark teaches us something about discipleship by contrast in this middle section. And it's important. It'll come into our application tonight. We see here in the beginning of chapter eight with these, this healing and then the disciples response to Jesus that they have insight into Jesus as the Messiah. And yet they are still in some ways spiritually blind and need to be healed. Three times in these three chapters, Jesus predicts his death and his suffering. And do you know what happens after each one of them? The disciples do something to show that they don't get it. Chapter 8, Peter flat out rebuked Jesus. No, that's not what Messiah should be doing, Lord. Chapter 9, Jesus predicts his death, and the disciples argue next over who is the greatest. Chapter 10, Jesus predicts his death and suffering. James and John come to Jesus and ask for first place of glory in Jesus' kingdom. They recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, but it's clear that he is not the Messiah. They want him to be. They want Messiah to kick out the Romans and he will elevate them to glory. But as Michael Card said in one of his songs, Jesus is not that kind of king. And so we have these 12 men who are called to be disciples, but they are kind of like the blind man in chapter 8. If you remember that story where he's healed, but the first healing only brings him so far. He has vision, but he says, I see men walking around like trees. He needed to be further healed a second time before he has 20-20 vision. And so also Jesus' disciples, they need to learn not that just he's the Messiah, but learn what it means to embrace a Messiah who is suffering and the suffering that comes before glory. And that's the big theme of discipleship in this section before we zoom into chapter 10. Here, Mark presents us with uh, different types of people who would follow Jesus. And starting at verse 17, you see this big literary X. Sometimes we like to call that a chiasm. The Greek letter T looks like an X. That's all it means, chiasm. But you you see uh, children and the blind men, humble people who realize they need Jesus. And you see the rich young ruler and the disciples, people who are trying to hang on to their status. And in the very center, Jesus, for the third time, telling about his death and resurrection. This is what the gospel is about. Let's just look briefly at these and see how it helps us inform discipleship. It starts with children who are helpless and humble. 
We love kids. We think they're cute. But in the ancient time, children were seen at the least likely of candidates for useful people. They had to grow up before they could be contributors to society. And so like the crowd with Bartimaeus, the disciples drive the kids away when they come to see Jesus. But if you look at chapter 10, Jesus is indignant, even angry. What does he say in verse 14 and 15? He says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You must have the attitude of a small child if you're going to follow Jesus. Humble, dependent, helpless, realizing that he will provide for you. Well, next comes the ideal candidate. Right? This rich young man comes up to Jesus, you're a good teacher. He nails down the subtext, you're good, I'm good, we're all good, right? And in this time, the disciples, instead of showing where, I think they're laying out the red carpet. This, this is, Mark doesn't give him a name for a good reason. Let's just call him Josephus. Like, hey, Josephus, can, can we call you Joe? Glad you're here talking to teacher. Hey, can we hang out afterwards? This is the guy that you want to be around. So, uh, naturally, Jesus sends him away. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Just, just keep the commandments. Oh, I've done that. Well, well great. Here's just, just one more thing. And he looks at him with love in his eyes. Sell everything that you have. Come follow me. And he goes away sad because he has this great wealth. And and Mark makes it clear, this wealth is his source of identity and strength and social standing. Mark doesn't give him a name because he's not fully alive. He's actually become depersonalized by his wealth. He's just the young man who's rich. You see, he couldn't follow Jesus because he had something to lose. Couldn't give it up. And at this point, Jesus predicts his death for a third time. He's here talking about he will lose everything for the sake of his people. Right after that, James and John ask to be exalted in glory and honor. You see their blindness on display, or, or you could say it's an ugly gospel tone deafness, if I can mix metaphors there. Right? Their teacher is, is talking about their suffering, and they ask for glory. And that brings us to Bartimaeus. Interesting, I, I read this in one of the commentators. He is the only person in, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who is healed, who is also named. He's the only one who's given a name. Now, that's possibly because Mark knew him. He was most likely a member of his church. Kids, well, I'd like to be a member of that church. You'd go up to him and say, Mr. Bart, can, can you tell me about the time that Jesus gave you sight? What a story that would be. That shows the Mark's veracity of Scripture. He, he gives details and names. This is not something that he's made up. This is something that he, he knew. But I also think there's a deeper reason here. Bartimaeus knew that he desperately needed Jesus' touch in his life. Unlike the rich young man, he, he couldn't fake it. He was helpless. Everyone knew it. He knew it. And he cried out in faith. And when he was healed, he became a whole person. He's fully alive as God intended him to be. Mark gives his name. You see this man who's transformed. One commentator said, What Bartimaeus lacks in eyesight, he makes up for in insight. I love that little touch that only Mark adds, that as he springs up, he throws aside his cloak, his, his one possession in life, most likely. The blind man lets it go in the crowd because it's on his way to Jesus. And Jesus heals him, and notice what happens to Bartimaeus afterwards. 
He follows him along the way. He follows him on the way. The, the word for way in Greek can be used a couple ways. It can be road or way. It can mean literal road, the road that you would ride your bike or car on or walk on. It can also mean a figurative way, you know, direction or, or life's path. Christianity was called the way. In Acts, they, Christians referred to themselves as followers of the way. Same word. Jesus, it's because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And so Bartimaeus here, you see the transition. He grows from begging alongside the road to following Jesus on the road. He's following him along the way. Mark is telling you, here's a picture of a true disciple. Bartimaeus had nothing to lose, and so he cried out to Jesus, and in doing so, gained everything. So what does this mean for us tonight? Well, I'd like to ask two questions as we think about Bartimaeus and Mark presenting him as this example of receiving God's grace. And the first question is for people who maybe you identify a little bit like the rich young man. I'll ask you, are you holding on to your goodness? Are you holding on to your goodness? Did you know that, I think according to a Pew Research poll recently, among self-confessed evangelicals, people who say, yes, I identify as an evangelical Christian, over 60% agreed with the statement that when something like this, if I do more good things than bad things, then God will let me into heaven. So over 60% of people in America who would call themselves evangelical Christians say, yeah, if I do enough good works, God will let me into heaven. That's not Christianity. That's not following Jesus along the way. That's like the rich man. Oh, yeah, keep the law. I've done that. I've done that since I was a boy. And what's next? No, no. Jesus says, yeah, God is righteous and holy and perfect. And the Bible says if you break the law, you break it at one point. You're guilty of breaking it all. And lawbreakers stand before God in danger of judgment and hell. And that's not because God is a killjoy and he just needs to lighten things up. It's because God is a perfect person. He's holy and pure and he can only be with holy and pure people forever. And if we're honest, that's not us. There's great beauty in our lives because God's made us, but we fall short. We break his law and we take his goodness and twist it so that we want to honor ourselves instead of him. And that's some pretty bad news, isn't it? But it's the bad news that leads to the good news that Jesus gave up everything. He held on to nothing. His glory, his power, a comfortable life, life itself. So that He gave up everything so that we can have everything. Every spiritual blessing, starting with a relationship with God. Now, I pray that many of you have heard the good news hundreds of times in your life. I pray that just talking about this still brings you joy. It brings a smile to your heart. Say, yes, that's what Jesus has done for me. But I ask you if, you, if you're like the rich young ruler and you believe enough that some way you do enough good, you're good enough for God. Are you still holding on to your goodness? Jesus says that won't work. Kids, adults, maybe someone watching online, are you holding on to your goodness? If so, start at the beginning with Bartimaeus. We call it the ABCs of the gospel. You have to admit that you're a sinner. Admit with Bartimaeus that you are helpless. You can do nothing. But believe that Jesus is the son of David. He's the Messiah who's given up everything. And then confess him as Lord and lay down your good works. Prove it by throwing aside his good works. 
receive salvation and follow him as you put your faith in him. You know, today Jesus looks at you with love in your eyes. If you're one of those people that say, hey, you know, I just think it's, it's, it's just a matter of doing more good works. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Admit you are helpless like Bartimaeus. Throw your good works aside and follow me. Don't go away sad like the rich young ruler because he was rich and he was held down by his wealth. Spring up. Throw them aside. Come to Jesus and be healed. That's the first question. Here's the second question for people who are true followers of Jesus, like his disciples. Are you holding on to your good works? You say you just asked that question. Yes. But you know, it's possible to be like the disciples along the way. And notice that they're kind of in parallel with the rich man. They're different because they don't go away. They have true faith. The Spirit's working in them. And yet, their faith is incomplete. They're, they're blind and they still grasp at their own goodness in ways. They argue about who is the greatest. John and James, they want to be the most honored. And when the rest find out, they're angry. I don't think they're grieved because the sons of Zebedee missed the point of the gospel. They're grieved because they got there first. They have an incomplete faith that confesses Jesus as Messiah. It's true, but on some other level, they're still holding on to their own goodness. And it's not just them. You know, on, on one hand, you can truly believe that Jesus died for your sin. I contribute nothing to my salvation. If I were to die tonight and stand before God and he asks me, why should I let you into my heaven? My answer would be because Jesus has died for my sin. I put my faith in him. I'm united to him and all that is his is mine. So therefore, I'm beloved and accepted. Full stop. I contribute nothing. And yet, true followers of Jesus, we can develop a spiritual amnesia and fool ourselves. You know, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen. You know, God's given me this grace and it's, it's truly sufficient. But then, you know, it's like startup capital. Jesus runs the show, but I got this little product on the side going. It's, it's pretty good. It's not too bad. What does the symptoms look like this when you have this gospel amnesia? Well, you can look down on others. That's, that's going to be a different sermon. But you see that the, the, the crowd pushing away Bartimaeus, the disciples pushing away the children. Right? You tend to look at yourself and as, as what's important to other people is inconvenience. But what I'm going to have us look tonight is that one of the symptoms of, of this gospel amnesia is that you have an image or a brand to cultivate. What, I mean, what do I mean by that? It means that, well, it starts like this. You come to know Jesus and God works in your life and you start to see the fruit and others start to know it and praise God and, and you're praising God, but then you know, um, you start to like it. You start to like that, that the praise and, and just the attention that you get. You, you might be known as that constant servant or the person who really has their theology down or the mom who's raised four wonderful children and they're out in the, ro- the world and they're, 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 they're on fire for the Lord or... Maybe you're just that religious person that goes to church twice on Sundays. Even a Super Bowl weekend. Right? You're, you're really legit. And pretty soon you find out that the good you do is calculated to build your own image. I mean, give God glory. Or maybe you're even more subtle than that. Maybe you're just really good 
about dropping hints about what you do. And it's amazing how your heart can work at this. Let me give you an example from my own life. A decade ago or so, um, I was getting ready for my deployment with Elizabeth, our first one together. And, and I, I did a, I think it's a pretty creative and romantic thing, I have to admit, even if I say so myself. I, Elizabeth loves puzzles, and I, I took a picture of our wedding, one of our favorite pictures, and I, I had it made laser cut into, I don't know, it was like a, like a 9 by 15 puzzle or something along those lines. It's 190 some pieces. And what I did was I, I started, I gave her the first one before I left, I believe. It was the most obscure one. She had no idea what it was. And then I, I broke them up into little baggies and I asked, I gave them to the people and I said, hey, you know, I, I gave, dated it. You know, you got 10 pieces and by this time you need to give her all the pieces. And so it was like a time release puzzle. And it took her about halfway through till she figured out what the picture was because I was really sneaky and made, a, made it a point so that was hard to figure out what it was. Uh, nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. And I, I given a bag to uh, friends, and I happened to be at the, a wedding with them, and my sister was there, and we were on a, a conversation, and I, I just happened to still mention to this friend, like, hey, did you get the bag that, that I can give to, you know, for Elizabeth, and you, you understand it all, and yeah, yeah. And, and as I was saying it and reflecting on it afterwards, I realized I didn't mention that because they needed to know the mechanics. They already did. I mentioned that because I wanted my sister to realize what I was doing, what a great husband I was. Wasn't stated. That, that wasn't what, what, what the impulse was, but underneath there was a current. I was building an image. I, I went back and I think I was over the phone, but I think I, no, later on I confessed to her what was going on. And it's very easy, frighteningly easy, to take our good works and start to make a little side product to, to build our own image instead of Jesus. There's another, there's another symptom. If you have this image to profess, protect, you don't confess your sins. It's very hard. If, if, if you're finding yourself holding on to your good works and you're creating this brand, then it's really hard to confess your sins, especially those little embarrassing ones. You know, the sins that the image of my self-curated picture should be mature enough to beat but can't on my own. I'm jealous of my friend and the life that she has. I waste time on fill in your blank of the smorgasbord of endless entertainment today. I, I, I don't stop eating when I should. And yet, we, we, you can't confess it. Why? Why is that? I think it's because we're, we're building this image and we don't want to appear weak. Our world and sinful nature, both saying be, we, being weak is bad. And I think we have an additional challenge. In America, we are all rich by, by today's standards, by history's standards. And James says that the rich actually have the lower place and the poor have the higher place. Why is that? Because when you are rich, you are self-sufficient. Like the young man, you're self-sufficient in the world. Most of you hold down a job. You're healthy and sound. You have money in the bank. You have food every day. If you have kids, they're grown up and mature. That's all blessings from God. But, you know, the trap is, wow, I really do have it all together. And, and we can take what God has given us in the physical blessings and say, we're independent here, and, and say, well, you know, maybe I'm independent of God's grace in the spiritual area as well. Whereas when someone is in constant physical weakness or truly poor, you can't help but admit that everything comes from God. I experienced this when I was in the hospital. It is, it is funny how differently you look at life when you're helpless on your bed, wondering if you will live. 
And as I lay there, I, I, I looked back on my life. I was praising God for it, wondering why I get to go back. But I was also, as I was helpless, and sometimes just needing help for the basic things. You know, Elizabeth would come. I'm, I'm glad that I'm at the point where I can take my own showers again, right? But just was, was helpless and needing a lot of care. I realized how much I prized my self-sufficiency and independence. And maybe even the image that I projected and maybe put stock in too much. I was a pastor, an army chaplain, a loving husband and father. These are all good gifts from God. But, but what if you say, well, I can't confess that sin. I'm a pastor. What do people think? I'm, I'm, I'm a godly Christian. No, no. That, then you realize you're, you're putting more stock in that identity than you are as a redeemed sinner. I will say it wasn't some mass deception or some disqualifying sin in my life, but the fact that I viewed these, my, my image in this way and I wouldn't confess showed that I was no longer acting like I had nothing to lose. You know, I had something on my own that I was trying to protect and it was keeping me from full life in Christ. I'll tell you, it's not fun saying I did this all the time, but I can tell you there's a difference in my attitude night and day when I'm, I'm nursing some good works or building them up, or like Bartimaeus, I throw aside the cloak and I run to Jesus. You know, those, those respectable sins in your life that no one else may see, you may be able to keep that shell up of that image on the outside and becoming hollow and cold and guarded on the inside. These can suck you of spiritual joy and rob you of vitality. And the worst part is, is that when you start building this image and, 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 and guarding and holding on to these things, you can't cry out. To your only hope, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And you certainly won't cry out or confess your sins to your brothers and sisters. If someone asks you, how are you doing? And they really mean it. And you know you're not doing well on the inside because of this image that you're cultivating. You give them a, oh, quick, fine. You know, just, I'm okay. I'm good. Because you, you have to be forced to admit that the image that you're cultivating isn't true. So what do we do? We call out to Jesus with Bartimaeus. Let me ask you, when was the last time that you've repented of a sin? Now, we do this as a congregation, and that's an important first step. But outside of that, when is the last time that you've repented? And, and not only to God, although that's the most important, but also to a brother or sister. You've gone to them and said, you know, I, I have this trouble with this sin I need you to pray for me. Would, would, you, would you help me? Would you hold me accountable? I'm not talking about airing out your sins to everyone, a trusted brother or sister, maybe a small group of believers. But it's key that you repent, and not just to God, but to people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had, had this particular insight in life together, and he said something along the lines of this. If you say you confess your sin to God, but you find it hard to confess your sin to others. You probably haven't truly confessed your sin to God. Because God is holy and righteous. And confessing isn't just admitting to the air that I've done something wrong. But it's, it's admitting that you're helpless to do anything and need grace and putting yourself before him humbly. And if you've truly humbled yourself before God, then you won't be hindered by shame that would keep you and hold you back from talking about it to the appropriate brother or sister who could give you grace. It's one of the reasons it's important for you to confess your sins to a brother and sister. Not only will you receive the encouragement from them, but it tells you, yes, I'm, I, I truly and seriously have repented of this. It's not that I'm just telling myself I have. It's 
The confession says, repent of particular sins particularly, and I'll add to particular people. You confess those sins, repent. It is hard, but it is good and brings so much joy. Can you, can you think of a time in your own life when you've had a sin weighing you down? And you know it's time to confess it. And, and, and you bring it to the, the person, the brother or sister, whether it's against them or it's just it's a sin in your life. And, and you feel that weight and maybe the burning in your chest. And, and, and then as you talk about it and they, they, they take you to Scripture and they, they tell you, God forgives you, brother, and so do I. And you ever feel that, that weight just coming off, the, the joy of, of knowing that you're forgiven. There's just the full delight of, of being open and honest that Jesus is your Savior. And I could say, I, I feel this gospel truly. No, I'm not pretending. I'm not trying to hold up my image. I've thrown it aside. I cling to the Savior. So followers of Jesus, what good works are you holding on to today? Is there an image you're trying to cultivate? Or, or, or are there those little respectable sins that you hide because you, you believe that if you confess them, they would ruin your image. In that case, you, you've got blind spots. And you need to be healed. So come to Jesus. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Throw aside those good works. Jump up and go to Jesus. May you use his spirit and his body to remove those blind spots in our faith so we can follow him along the way. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you have included in your word this beautiful little story about Bartimaeus, a brother in Christ whom we will see in heaven. We can ask him about what it was like to have Jesus heal him in his first sight being the Lord. Father, would the gospel be so beautiful and wonderful to us that it, it, your spirit would shine in our hearts where we're tempted to cling on to some status or some good work on our own. Could we receive the joy today, this week, of being free of that burden? Could we instead be people who, with joy, learn to repent as a way of understanding the gospel even more deeply? People who rejoice in our helplessness and are full of hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.